0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland.
1: Daisy, Daisy.
0: Very nice. Thank you. Very nice.
1: Yeah, I, I that has n- practically no connection whatsoever to what we're going to talk about, but people think it does. <laughs> okay. Because Hal, H-A-L, that's one letter off from IBM. IBM. Yep. Yep. So this is part two of our episode about the history of IBM and its impact on technology, which I think it's safe to say it cannot be understated. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: No, I'm kidding. It can't be overstated. That's where you're supposed to jump on me for using the wrong word.
0: Oh, okay. Well, it's funny. We we didn't talk about it at all, and I'm just going to throw this in as a footnote before we get started. Sure. We didn't talk about it in the first episode. Uh, one of the uh, reasons that we've got three episodes on IBM is because the, the company's been around for a very long time, has done a lot of technological innovation, has a very rich company culture, which includes music, Yes. In fact, it's one of the few companies that has its own anthem. Yes. Um, you know, in fact, Thomas J. Watson Sr., who, uh, who became, we're, we're starting this episode in 1952. He became IBM president in 1952, officially, uh, although he led the company before that. Um, he established the first company band in 1915. So all along. The entire company hit. Well, not the entire company history, but a lot of the company history for almost hundred years now. They have had a company band. They have a company anthem. It's they weird even have they
1: play all their music on tabulating machines. It's very rhythmic uh, but not melodic.
0: The IBM songbook was printed the year after we're starting the this IBM in 1953. Songbook. You can actually you can listen to this on the at the archives at ibm.com. So if you want to hear the IBM anthem. The IBM fight song. The IBM fight song. There is one. Oh no. Well, it's a rally song. It's called Ever Onward. And the, the, I'm just
1: wondering, down with you, Apple. Down with you. Not then there wasn't. Because Apple wasn't
0: established until the 1970s. 1970s. Yes, I know. So yeah. It would actually be more like down with you, Burroughs. Right. We should do Burroughs. That would be kind of fun.
1: I guess so. Sometime For after we get done a given definition the of the word fun, yes.
0: Well, just because they were a, a computer <laughs> innovator.
1: Yes, this is true.
0: But we decided to start again with IBM in 1952. Again, uh, Watson. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Watson Jr. became the company president in 1952. Yeah. His dad was leading the company before that. I, was. I'm sorry,
1: yeah. I misspoke earlier. And Watson Senior was uh, was a mem- uh, chairman of the board. by sorry 19- about that. That's Wait, fine. No, no. What about no. Sinatra? Oh well, no. He was over there with uh, Dino, and uh hey, what? A, where am I going with this? Ain't that a kick in the head? <laughs> I was listening to that this morning. So you wanted to talk about uh, the seven o one? Did I? Yes, the, yes, the I did. First production computer. Yes. So 1952, IBM introduces the seven o one, starting a long line of catchy IBM product names.
0: Well, <laughs> let's let's face it. Okay, we're talking about. Uh, a kind of industry where that it just isn't sexy in terms of consumers. Right, right. People the, weren't buying computers for their homes.
1: The customers here were
0: businesses. So why do you need a fancy name?
1: Yeah, you just need something that's easy to look up. You don't need something that's, you know, you don't need the Jaguar.
0: Well, hey, if you're, if you're going to get right down to it, it's Saturn. It still works for Peugeot, the which Fentos. sells cars with three digit names yeah, with a zero yeah. in the middle. So and then you're like, 702 oh. would be right up there, alley.
1: So the 701 comes out in 1952. It is the first IBM large-scale electronic computer manufactured in mass quantities. Uh, it was the first commercially available scientific computer, and it, uh, it had a, a program stored in an internal addressable electronic memory, which was brand new for the time. Yep. And that's something that we all take for granted now because we've had it for decades but this was a brand new idea and it only took two years from the time when ibm first sketched out the idea for the 701 to when it rolled off the production lines so two-year development cycle for a brand new groundbreaking computer is phenomenal that shows that ibm was really putting some of their smartest hardest working engineers on this project
0: and it seems like they'd taken the uh, IBM motto that you spoke of in the last podcast about uh, Thomas J. Watson Sr. Uh, think very much to heart. Yes. Um, yeah. It was only a year later that they came out with a 702, which was a commercial version of the computer, and uh, the 650 magnetic drum calculator, which apparently calculated drums.
1: Yeah. And uh, wait a minute. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, no. 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 So anyway, the the reason for these um, these. One of the reasons, I should say, for the rapid development of the 701 and the 702 was actually the outbreak of another uh, conflict. It was the Korean War, which broke out in, in June of 1950. And Thomas J. Watson, Sr. asked the U.S. government what IBM could do to help the war effort. And the government said, build us some really powerful scientific computers that we can use for our you know for our strategic needs and that was what got ibm to work and the 701 and 702 are kind of direct results of that discussion it's pretty kind of it's kind of an interesting story and the idea that watson at this point is he's offering he's like look i have this huge corporation we have all this this uh power of, of mind here we've got some of the finest engineers in all the world working for my company what can I do to help I and mean, that's kind of phenomenal it's not just hey you know what would make us a, a lot of money let's do this it's I think that's a pretty interesting you know it, it shows a certain uh, philosophy that Watson had that I thought was was pre- pretty interesting. Also, kind of interesting to note,
0: just on a, a corporate culture side, uh, in 1953, that's when Thomas J. Watson Jr. Uh, wrote the first equal opportunity policy letter yes, for the company.
1: Which came a full year before Brown versus the Board of Education. Right. So, right. before the Supreme Court had even heard that case, uh, Watson Jr. was saying that, you know, he was establishing that there should be an equal opportunity employment uh, uh, culture at IBM. So again, we're starting to see that IBM's not just leading the way technology-wise, uh, they're leading the way as far as corporate culture goes. Yes. They they are pioneers in multiple avenues. Just kind of interesting. So uh you know and you know what they did in 1954, you know what kind of what uh military computer they developed then? No, what? The Naval Ordnance Research computer or NORC? NORC yeah fastest electronic computer at that time so uh, again i b m working with the united states government on that
0: yeah they uh they su- they succeeded the uh the seven oh one with the seven oh four and mm-hmm. the seven o two with the seven o five um and introduced new elect- uh new typewriters as well yep um including the executive typewriter except yes. i didn't think executives typed Back in those days, I think they had somebody to do that for them.
1: Yeah, the executive assistant typewriter is really what it should have been called. Probably so. 1955, IBM develops magnetic core storage units. So uh, that that research they had been doing a couple of years previously, it was starting to pay off. Uh, 1956 was a big year for IBM for a, a sad reason. Yes. Because that was when Thomas J. Watson Sr. died. Yes. He passed away in 1956. So at the time that that Watson Senior passed away, if you remember from our previous podcast on IBM, we talked about when Watson took control, the uh, the gross income was four million dollars and the net earnings was uh, one million. Yeah. Let's compare that to when he passed away in 1956. At that time, IBM's gross income was 892 million dollars. The earnings was eighty seven million dollars and they employed seventy two thousand five hundred four employees even adjusted for inflation that's a significant increase and you know they, when when Watson took control there were what sixteen hundred employees. Now, 72,504 by the time he passes away.
0: Also, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, also, as their innovation has gone on, they've increased uh, not only the ability for machines to process information, increase the speed with which it's processing information, but they're also moving gradually uh, from – El- electromechanical devices to electronic devices.
1: Yes. By the time you're hitting the 701, 702, and 704 and 705 machines, you're really moving away from the punch card era. It's they're, they're starting to be able to phase out punch cards to some extent. Now, punch cards would remain an important part of IBM for years to come, just because you know, just as IBM is developing this new technology, that doesn't mean that all the companies that are IBM's customers can adopt that that technology immediately. So IBM continued to support that older technology for years, although it was also driving the innovation that made it possible to move away from the old punch card system.
0: Yeah, before before anyone writes in to say this, unless of course you've paused the podcast, in which case you're violating rule number seven of the podcast. Yes. Um yeah, we were aware that that people were still programming with punch cards. Into the 70s and possibly 80s, I wouldn't be surprised if there's not somebody doing it now because they're on some legacy system that right, right. requires you to use this, you know, some, some antiquated programming language. So don't <laughs> – you know, they're moving away from it, but they haven't completely
1: right. Yeah, like I said, it. they support it, but they don't – It's that's not where the innovation is. And also, by the way, rule number six of the podcast is there is no rule number six of the podcast uh, in case you guys are keeping track. <laughs> Uh, so 1957. That's okay. when they developed the 709, 709 computer. That's also. Do you know what language came out in, ni- in, in that year? Programming language developed by IBM. Fortran. Yes, Fortran. This is again a big, big step. IBM makes Fortran programming language available to consumers. Uh, before that, you know you. You didn't really have access to, to a way of programming your computer. It pretty much ran on whatever protocols you happened to have. Fortran, now you can develop your own. Uh, not easy. Fortran was not necessarily something you could just quickly pick up in an afternoon, but it still was a big leap as far as computers are, are concerned. Yeah, it's, it's not Python. Let's just say that. No. Uh, do you have anything between 57 and 61? Cause my next thing that I want to really talk about is comes in 61.
0: Yes. Well, I have a, I have another giggle moment. Okay. Now, if you listen to the last podcast, I was giggling because originally when, when IBM was founded, it was, uh, as a merger between three companies making equipment for businesses. Right. Um, one of which was a scale company, one of which was uh, a tabulating machine company, uh-huh. which is essentially the computer part. And then the other was a, uh, a time recording company. Yes. Um, Now, of course, you know clocks, very important to computers, but they decided at at, at, uh, an earlier point to get rid of the scale company because it just wasn't doing what they thought it would. Right. So uh, Mr. Watson Sr. decided to get rid of it, and uh, it immediately took off and is now part of a very large company that still sells things, so it did not fail. Yes. Neither did the time equipment division when they decided to sell it to Simplex Time Recorder Company, which is now Simplex Grinnell. So yeah they're they're they are dividing themselves up. We didn't mention that uh just as a note uh as the company is moving on, especially now in the 1950s the company is splitting off divisions yes um they now have a a military division even to mm-hmm. help uh develop products for the military um as well as you know different kinds of businesses uh so uh apparently they decided to divest themselves of this one which continued to succeed without them
1: but you know what I think I don't fault them I for think that. That's I, still, just think it's I think sort it of shows, reason. I think it still shows wisdom though, right? Because, sure, sure. Because there, there is the possibility that you're, let's say you're in, a, you, you are running an enormous corporation and you have a lot of balls to juggle, right? You're, you're trying to, you got a lot sure. of irons in the fire, if you prefer that metaphor. So you got all these irons in the fire and, you, you know, you may not be able to, to, Push all of them the way they need to be in order to succeed. There's nothing wrong with that. And selling something off that you cannot make succeed, yeah. and then seeing it succeed, all that means is that su- that the the potential was there. You just didn't have the resources necessary to make it happen.
0: That's true. It, it could have it could have done poorly since it's not a core business for IBM at this point. Right. Uh, it may actually have been a drag on IBM. Yes. Uh, and IBM may not have been able to put the resources behind it. That it would take to make it successful. So uh, it's just sort of a, huh, well, yeah. it turns out that, that wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't, there wasn't completely not yeah, bad yeah, idea. It
1: wasn't anything inherently bad about right. the division itself. Well, I personally consider that a success for everybody involved. True. Because the, the alternative was that IBM could have held on to it and then could have suffered for it, both the division sure. and IBM itself.
0: Sure. Um, IBM put all its workers on salary and introduced a stock purchase plan in 1958, which was – Again, showing a lot of foresight yeah, and uh, again, treating its employees well. Corporate culture pioneers. Uh, the 7000 series computers were introduced in mm-hmm. 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vacuum tube machines, the 700 series, yes. now obsolete.
1: So yeah, vacuum tubes, That if you guys aren't familiar, I mean, that was the precursor to the transistor. Yep. Uh, so you've got vacuum tubes, which were very efficient, uh, comparatively speaking, but they had other problems like for one, they generated a lot of heat and mm-hmm. they took up a lot of space. So we're talking, when we're talking about computers with IBM, we're talking mainframe computers. The early mainframe computers were so large, they could take up an entire room, uh, in a building. And in fact, some of the supercomputers of the day would take up an entire floor of a building. And because we're talking about vacuum tubes, that's part of the reason why they were so big. It wasn't that they were super, super powerful, although they were for the time. It was because the, the, individual components that made up the supercomputer were much larger than the ones we have in our devices today.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So it would get pretty warm and steamy in the uh, supercomputer room with all those vacuum tubes going. Yep. And it wasn't until uh, uh, IBM really started to dedicate itself to solid state electronics, when we're talking about solid state transistors, that uh, we started to see a shift away from vacuum tubes and toward uh, alternative means of processing.
0: Yep. Yep. Now, uh, just quickly, in 1960, you could tell that that even back in Herman Hollerith's day, Hollerith was the person who created the uh, the tabulating yes portion of the original com- uh, companies that formed IBM. They're still doing the same kind of work. Um, the 305 RAMAC uh, machine mm. was used to score the Winter Olympic Games that year, and California was used at political conventions to they tally gave votes. in a nine point four and. Uh, <laughs> Processing for presidential election returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, IBM was used to launch and track Project Echo, which was a, a space communications experiment. You the said United that wrong. did. It's
1: Project Echo, Echo, Echo. Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, and they were using the uh, Mark II language translator to translate Russian into English.
1: Yeah, that, that – Here's something else that I did not know until I started researching this podcast. Yeah. IBM has pioneered some technologies that we're just starting to see benefit us today, but they started it decades ago. Yes. You sit there and you think, like, there's no way in the early 60s that that could have possibly been there. And yet you find out, wait a minute, they were working on this. We're just now starting to see things like like Google's Translate uh, software or, or their applications where you can translate languages on the fly. That stuff, you know, it really it, it it has its history way back in the, the these days of development in IBM. So yes. 1961, this is the one that I wanted to talk about. And Chris, I know I you think, want to talk about it too because you just showed me a picture of it.
0: I think he's actually salivating, ladies and gentlemen.
1: It's the Selectric typewriter. Yes, yes. So what was different about the Selectric than say older typewriters? Well, I can
0: I can be honest with you here. I I, I know this stuff. Uh, straight away, my mom had a Selectric typewriter, As which is, did
1: my dad,
0: which was is still in the family, I believe. Uh, I actually have an Underwood typewriter. Now, those typewriters these are the old, old typewriters, yes. which weigh about seven tons. Yeah, yeah, they're heavy. Um, but they also well, you know, they're very robust. But they used to have keys, and each of the keys and I'm not talking about the keyboard keys. Each of the keyboard keys was linked to a a key with one letter on it. Yes. So, and they were all arranged in an arc. Yeah. Uh, facing the paper. So as you pressed one key, that little arm would reach up and type that letter on the paper.
1: Yeah. So each each key had its each letter had its own dedicated arm. And this is all mechanical, right? This right. is all connected through a series of, of levers and little uh, uh, pistons that you press. You press the D button and the D bar goes forward and stamps the paper with the the D letter on the end there's actually a, a ribbon there that has the ink the the key the, uh, the head of it, the arm, hits the ink, and that prints the letter onto the paper. And uh, when you got to the end of that,
0: and this is a mechanical typer, no electricity needed right. to make this work. When you get to the end of the line, you need to make a carriage return to the next line, a la Jerry Lewis. Tick, 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 you press the ding, tick, 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 you, and you hit the ding. ding, you have to press the lever back, and it advances you to the next line. Well, the Selectric was an electric typewriter.
1: Well, and electric typewriters had been out for a few decades, but this was a new design.
0: Yes. Uh, which instead of using those little arms, used a ball with all the uh, outdented letters on it. Yeah, arranged not the right thing. I, yeah. Also, I'm not sure.
1: Also, you... projected.
0: Yes. The other cool thing about that, well, so when you type a key, the typewriter knows which, uh, where on the ball that letter is and will rotate the ball and angle it so that it will type that letter in a precise alignment with the rest of the letters on the page. Right. That's one thing that makes it cool. Another thing that makes it cool is you could change the ball. Yes. So no longer are you limited to typewriter font. You can change the size and the uh, the typeface. Yes. Because it's a font when it's not on the paper and when it is, it's a typeface. I um, did not know that. Yes. So you could remove these and uh, change it out if you wanted to. Now, this w- benefited people like my mom who, this will astonish you, could type 135 words a minute. Wow. When she used the older style typewriters, the keys would jam and rub against one another so often that she would have to have her typewriter replaced. Also, uh, because it would just completely destroy the typewriter. Since it was time. since it
1: required physical force, you had to actually type a little harder, especially on older uh-huh. typewriters. I know this from experience too, because I've used one of those. Um, that if you were typing on an old typewriter, you couldn't go as fast because you had to use more force per stroke, especially if you know you're you're typing lightly. The uh the arm might not strike the paper hard enough to make a good impression, and then you've got this kind of faded look, even though the pa even though you've just typed it, right? right it right. almost looks like you're running out of ink, but really it just means you're running out of steam. Um, so yeah, the Selectric was pretty cool. It looks like if you've ever seen one, you would you would recognize it immediately. It looks like a little golf ball. Yeah, is the uh is the typing interface there? And um, yeah, you're 130, huh? Yeah, my top seriously. my top speed was 105.
0: My uh. My mom, when she got going, sounded on the Selectric sounded like a machine gun. Yeah, because it was moving so fast.
1: Uh, that explains why you you duck around corners a lot and that, you know you do those weird hand signals whenever you want to go down the hallway.
0: Yeah, best I can get is around sixty. So I'm I'm still that still blows me away. But uh, th- this was also the period in time when uh, IBM they were still working on the space program. Yes, they created a, a guidance computer for the Saturn series.
1: Yes, and also the Gemini, or if the you prefer, Gemini. Gemini. Uh, I cannot stand I that what, pronunciation. Which which I forgot which of the astronauts? We did this so long ago. I can't yeah, we did who... the
0: we did the Jiminy podcast. Yeah. And... It was one of the Jiminy astronauts that said it that way. It just... I don't
1: know. That just makes me think of Eddie Carroll. Uh... He was the voice for Jiminy Cricket. Damn. Friend of the family. Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, they developed the guidance computers for n- the space program for, for both the Saturn and Gemini, uh, <laughs> well, I figure might as well, right? Just keep going with Saturn it. Saturn and Gemini programs. Um, and so that's kind of cool. You know, IBM was, uh, this was one of those things where IBM had to submit a proposal to the government and they were selected to develop these guidance, uh, computer systems. It's selectric. Yeah. In 1964, IBM announced the next really, really big development, uh, one of the most important developments in the company's history. You could argue it is the most important at this point. A bread slicer? No, the System Stroke 360. Ah, uh, the controversial
0: System Stroke 360. Was it controversial? It was controversial. Do p- Pray elaborate, Mr. Pellett. Um. Well, in, in doing research on IBM... Uh-huh. Uh, I can tell you right now that uh, there is a lot of information on IBM. Yeah. yeah. So I don't yes. know everything there is to know about the system stroke 360. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is actually, if you if you want to go and really want to know more about the system, I would suggest going to the Computer History Museum, computerhistory.org. Yes. yes. They actually have a seminar on the system stroke 360. Wow. But in a nutshell, uh, it was a mainframe computer. And it was a huge gamble because mm-hmm. it was – the system that they came up with was so dramatically different. It required a massive investment. And they were not 100 percent certain that it was going to work. As in they weren't certain that people would adopt this kind of system. So with the amount of money that they poured, poured into the program in Which a nutshell
1: – Billions of dollars as I recall.
0: A whole lot of R&D money yeah. they, they poured into this. Um, as a matter of fact, five – well – Five billion. Yeah, that's uh, why. According thought. to the article that I read in Wired magazine or mm-hmm. online, Um yeah, it, they decided to create the system. But what made it so different was, you know, we were just talking about how large these mainframe computers were. They could take up massive amounts of floor space in yes. your, your business. Well, this was a modular system, right? Modular. It could have you. You might have the the CPU in one device and a display terminal that goes with it mm. and a control unit and Data cell storage and drum storage. Um, so if you needed more computing power, you just
1: you purchase more modules.
0: Right. The card punch unit—that's a separate device. Yep.
1: Still had card punch. And if you think about it,
0: that's pretty much the way we're doing things now yeah. on a different scale. But I mean, again, this is before there are a lot of people using computers in you know personally on their desktop at work. But I mean, now at this point, you have your server, and you have you know when somebody comes into your company, they get their own computer, mm-hmm. and in some cases, printer, and you know whatever else they happen to need. Sometimes a monitor if they want to see what's going on. External hard drive. You yeah. have your server. If you need more server space, you add another disk drive to the yep. server. Yep.
1: So, I mean, so yeah, the modular the model the modu- yeah. took – it really – yeah, it was a big gamble, but it ended up being the right one. Uh, also, there was another big gamble that they introduced with the System Stroke 360, yes. which was that they introduced the 8-bit Byte. Mm. before that uh, uh they, they really pushed the eight bit byte it was it wasn 't the first time that that had ever been around, but that 's what this system used now. there were other computers that used twelve bit and thirty six bit based computers, so they were around but because IBM pushed this because it got adopted because the gamble paid off, the eight bit byte became standard and Just think if without this system, we might have a lot more confusion in the marketplace. But uh, so each computer, you do you know, happen to know how much they cost when they started to uh, to sell them? Oh well,
0: according to Wired, yeah. in 1966, IBM was selling a thousand of these at a month at about two and a half to three million dollars a piece. A piece.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of moolah. Even in
0: 1960, in
1: the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. So. This ended up being the basis for IBM's uh, – most of IBM's computer businesses moving forward. So, yeah, like we said, big, big gamble, big payoff. Uh, do you have anything pre-1968? That's the next thing I have. Uh, pre-1968. Between 64 and 68.
0: They, uh, I, I would like to point out that they are, they are working with lasers. Lasers? At this point. They're using lasers to, uh, carry information. Yes. As a matter of fact.
1: They were also looking into, uh, storage media using lasers. So this is a precursor to compact discs, laser discs, DVDs, that kind of thing.
0: They're still, they're still working with the, uh, Gemini. Flights. They actually have onboard computers, as as it is joked very often, a Commodore sixty four was more powerful than these machines. Yeah. But at the time when you think about it, they were going out into space and coming back safely with these yeah. devices. So they you know, they're pretty sophisticated.
1: Yeah, and really when you get down to it, they were able to crunch the numbers, which is what the computers had to do, right? They weren't they didn't have to play Hunt the Wumpus, as awesome as that game was. I keep bringing it up because it's the first video – it's the first computer game I can remember playing ever. It's the first one I remember having is Hunt the Wumpus. Oh, OK. Uh, a terrible game, by the way. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, not really. I'll tell you about it after the show. In
0: 1967, they uh, IBM had an exhibit at Canada's Expo 67. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, they were also working on um, – the first monolithic integrated germanium circuits.
1: Is that what was in the beginning of 2001? The thing that fell to earth and all the apes were dancing around it? No. I,
0: that is a monolith. Oh, okay. But, uh, yes, yeah, so you remember we, we talked about, uh, germanium before yes, on yes. the podcast when we started talking about
1: semiconductors. Oh, wait. I was thinking of flowers.
0: <laughs> okay. Um,. So, yes, and they also had a trillion-bit photo digital storage system for the Atomic Energy Commission. Yep. Uh, it's it's funny because um, the information on IBM.com, they have a very, very, very comprehensive Fact. timeline yes. with all kinds of stuff. But uh, it's funny because if you look at these documents, and I encourage you to do so. I mean, they're free. Download them at, at, uh, at your leisure. Yeah. But they break it down into – you know, Jonathan and I are kind of concentrating on the stuff that everyone, I mean, like the stuff that the public would sort of be aware of. Yes. But they were making contributions to business in general, yep. their business practices, business culture. They were uh, also doing science yes. in the background. Yes. Look at me still talking when there's science to be done. Yeah. Um, the cake is a lie. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, they, uh, uh, so they're working on all this stuff in, in particular. So I, I kind of wanted to note a few of those sure, things. Sure, sure. Uh, like the Braille typewriter that's coming oh, yeah, up in no, 1968. That's,
1: that's pretty cool. Yeah, 1968 was a, a neat year. Uh, they started working on the Apollo program, so yes. they started started to produce computers for the Apollo program. In fact, IBM's very proud to to say that the uh, IBM computers at the control center were part of the uh, reason why we were able to get our astronauts back home safely during the Apollo 13. Uh, near disaster yes it they could specifically have a, point that out right yes that they that it was IBM systems that helped the uh, engineers at, at uh, back at ground control to get the astronauts back to earth safely um, and uh, yeah that's that's a pretty big deal they also in 1968 that's specifically when they started to develop a laser optical memory system
0: yes um,
1: we can start jumping forward a little bit because like you said, the, the developments are coming fast and furious at this point, and to cover all of them, we would need an entire afternoon, and we yeah. just don't have that time.
0: And we haven't even been touching on all the scientists who've been awarded the National Technology Prize and right. all sorts of other medals and recognitions for and, the stuff that they've done. Or worn.
1: we haven't talked about Indicott. We yeah. haven't talked about how IBM was investing in scientific uh, uh, knowledge and and advancements through their own IBM campuses I mean you it wasn't just a place to go and work it was a place to go learn and pioneer like you know think that that motto that came from uh, Thomas Watson senior think really did become the central foundation for what IBM was all about yeah, it's and about and it knowledge still workers. is really. Yep. So, uh, so 1970, IBM announces the System Stroke 370, which was the, you know, of course, the uh, the successor to the 360. This is a
0: small snicker moment because, okay. of course, the System stro- Stroke 360 was supposed to be a comprehensive package. So yeah. you have your 360 degrees. Yes. So I guess now you have 10 more degrees.
1: Right. Well, you know, I'm just saying, just in case it gets cold. And then there's, uh, <laughs> they also introduced in 1970 the first IBM copier which became a bigger business for them further down the road. The first IBM copier? Yeah. The first IBM copier. And they're supposed to get less strong as you go on. The first IBM copier. Well, it's better than
0: the mimeograph machine. That's that's true. That's true. So in
1: in 1971, that's when those braille printers really started hitting the market. Uh, They started to experiment with speech recognition technology in 71 again decades before we started seeing this in in applications that we would recognize right they were working on it in 71 uh 1973 i'm jumping much further ahead cuz we already mentioned the Selectric 2? well no because we talked about the Selectric enough i thought okay uh, and we're running out of time I'm so 73 they introduced the ibm diskette which was a new storage <laughs> medium that became very important
0: yes it is
1: yeah loved those diskettes. I'm not I'm not even joking. I there's something about being able to physically see how much data you have because you're looking at the disks that is really satisfying to me. You know, uh, when you look at a hard drive, you know how much it can store, but that doesn't, you know, you don't it doesn't give you a visual cue of wow, I got a lot of stuff.
0: Our our uh, middle school and junior high school student listeners and we have quite a few of them are going to laugh because they all have Pocket flash drives with
1: yeah that can hold hundred times right they can hold the entire library I had on diskette on yeah. one thumb drive yeah, yeah.
0: I, I I was I was joking don't write me in to tell me I was wrong it was just a saying
1: 1976 <laughs> IBM computers are used on the space shuttle Enterprise I remember that the the uh, prototype of the space shuttle program Enterprise which was used to test the model it was not uh, not meant to actually take astronauts into space. Um, but yeah, they they used the computers aboard that. And uh jumping all the way up to 1980, we're just going to end this episode on 1980 because in 1981, we enter a new era in IBM history. So 1980, the gross income for IBM at this point, keeping in mind when it started, 4 million gross income, 1 million earnings. billion with a B dollars. The earnings, 3.39 billion. 341,279 employees. So more than a quarter of a million employees at this point. And their products at this time included ultra-fast processors for business computer systems. They did word processors. They still had the typewriters. They were doing data storage media. They had analytical instruments for scientific research development uh, um, applications. All of this is going on in 1980. And in 1981, they really strike a new uh they 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 head into a new market. Before we move on to eighty one
0: for our next podcast, I so wanted yeah. to add a science thing that they did. Please do in nineteen eighty. Uh, according to the company, uh, they did. Uh, some of the researchers were able to start using computers to transcribe human speech. Uh, with uh, now we're talking rudimentary, a yeah. thousand word vocabulary here, so mm-hmm. it's not like Watson. Yeah, uh, but it was able to read and convert tech, uh, speech to print with about 91% accuracy.
1: So see, they've been awesome. walking,
0: they've been working on Watson for quite some time.
1: Yeah. Now. Yeah. That was a, that was a, that was a long tail game right there.
0: Yes. But of course it paid off in the end.
1: So, yeah. By, uh, it, by several thousand dollars, as I recall, cause they won the whole championship, right? Yep. <laughs> I'm sure that that helped offset the billions of dollars of research and
0: development. Yes, but it—they uh, do expect that it will have applications. And if you wondered where Watson's name came from, if you didn't listen to the podcast, uh, the machine that we're talking about that won Jeopardy, beat yes. two human opponents at the game show Jeopardy, yeah. um, it came from the company's
1: founder, founder-ish. Well, yeah, the guy—the guy who instilled in the company all of the philosophies that have guided it since then,
0: and really built it into a single company from the three composite companies. Yeah. the original so trust. So Thomas was built from.
1: J. Watson, Sr. So anyway. all right, well we are going to wrap this part up. We have one more part to come about uh, the personal computer era of IBM's history. It was it played a very important role in that in that whole market, and then we're going to um, uh, get away from IBM after that. For those of you who are uh, thinking that three podcasts about a company is too much, well, IBM really is instrumental in so many areas of tech. It was hard to to be able to shrink it into fewer than three. In fact, we probably could do four or five, yeah. but we're not. Th- the third will be our final one, at least for the time being. Ooh, ooh, I forgot one small thing. Please. 1979.
0: Yeah. UPC codes.
1: So anyway, if you guys want to hear more information about a particular favorite wait, company... Wait, there's yeah. another one. They Ar- introduced Risk Architecture in 1980. Please, for the love of all that is good, pl- send us a message on <laughs> Twitter or Facebook. Our handle there is techstuffhsw or you can shoot us an email. That address is Stuff at house Stuffworks.com And Chris and I will talk to you again more about IBM really soon.
0: For more on this and
1: thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you...